Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get a top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We are broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Follow us at internetlawcenter.net. Um, we are thrilled to have an old friend of the show back today, Matt Schaefer of Brandon Isaacson and Louis Nemay, although he's calling in from their Portland office. Matt is one of the nation's leading lawyers dealing with online sales taxes, is one of our earliest episodes in February 2011, and won a major victory within hours of getting off the air. And the next week, we had a guest discussing the role of the Internet in Arab Spring, and Egyptian President Mubarak resigned days after that show. So the next episode, I invited the Boston Red Sox to come on while we still had our mojo. And they should have taken our advice since that was the year that the Red Sox um, had a record September collapse. So Matt is back, but the Red Sox are safely in the playoffs. So, um, And he's here to talk about a recent Supreme Court decision that may open up the door to states imposing online sales taxes, South Dakota versus Wayfair, a case he was co-counsel in. So you can check out our show notes for background on Matt and this topic at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at CyberLawRadio. Matt, thank you for joining us. It's great to talk with you again. It's been a while, um, but it's good to have you back. And um, so... This whole journey of over um, getting you know, the, the Wayfair battle, um, it actually covers, kind of takes a detour through much of what we were talking about several years ago with the Amazon tax. But why don't you um, just start us off with, 
you know, how we got here, you know, from from Quill to now Wayfair. Sure. So you mentioned Quill. Quill was a case the court decided in 1992, Supreme Court of the United States, in 1992 reaffirmed a 1967 rule that is adopted in a case called National Bellis Hess, which provided that in order for a state to be able to force a business to collect that state's sales taxes, that the business needed to have a physical presence in the state. And in the earlier cases, Bellis Hess and Quill, that was about mail order retailers. Um, Post-1992, we all know what happened. The Internet took off, and the issue um, gained even more prominence because uh, Internet retail, uh, you know, took over um, the major segment of growth in the U.S. economy on the retail segment. So you ended up with a question about, well, this physical presence rule from Bellis, and Quill, what's the right understanding of that in the Internet era? And fast forward to the sort of um, kind of early 2000s, states began to get very aggressive about um, trying to force Internet retailers to collect their sales taxes, and they adopted a variety of different laws seeking to do that. Um, one of the and just, that, just to interrupt, yeah, I mean, we... We, that's what we had you got you had on to talk about. You know, basically, I was calling it the Amazon tax wars, and you had this boom of the internet occurring right at the time of the collapse of the economy, and state revenues were plummeting, and they're looking at all these online sales that were going untaxed. So they kind of contorted to define nexus to fit within the quill confines, and. Um, so the, that that's how that's what started that we kind of this battle and and uh, but continue please. Yeah, so you're right. It was 2008 when um, New York, you know, right in the middle of that financial crisis, said, "Why don't we see if we can't get retailers to collect our taxes based on them having internet affiliates in the state, you know, um, news sites or other sites where they had an ad and they would." Um, get referrals from that news site to customers who might make a purchase. New York sought to use that as a way of of, uh, requiring retailers to collect tax. Um, It was largely successful, but some of the other states, including Illinois, that adopted it um, didn't have as much luck. Uh, We we won a case in Illinois. That's the one you're referring to back in 2013, the Illinois Supreme Court. But states certainly weren't going to give up the effort. Um, there was a Colorado law that was enacted uh, in um, around 2010 that my firm litigated for years and years, including up to the Supreme Court on a jurisdictional issue, that sought to make retailers collect under a different mechanism. And then in 2016, South Dakota said, you know what, we're going to just take this head on uh, and we're going to adopt a statute that requires a retailer that does not have physical presence in the state to collect our taxes if it has enough sales or transactions in the state. So they, they clearly that, were intending to create a challenge to Quill. Yes, that was the entire point of the, of the law. Now what surprised um, me in terms of how we got here was you know, there was a challenge to the New York, you know, the first law, the first Amazon tax law, and it was upheld by the New York High Court and uh, you know, there was an appeal to the Supreme Court and I was surprised that they didn't bite. Um, in 2013, yeah, and, I think it, 
you know, what uh-huh. has marked the, the, the history of Supreme Court attention to this issue was largely turning down cases, not taking them. <laughs> exactly. And then you, you have um, 2015, that where you actually, you know, your, your firm is before the Supreme Court in Direct Marketing Association versus Broll, and uh, the opinion itself is just reversing a Court of Appeals decision that said that you couldn't enjoin a, a state from you know enforcing a law because you couldn't. It was this kind of technical issue about whether you couldn't a, a federal court could enjoin state tax collection, and Justice Thomas said no, that's not the issue. But you had this uh, remarkable concurrence by Justice Kennedy who says it is unwise to delay any longer a reconsideration of the court's holding in Quill. And I guess South Dakota's law was passed right the next year, right? It was. And they pointed to Justice Kennedy's concurrence in that, that Broll case of ours where they said, you know, this, this is something that uh, even uh, Justice of the Supreme Court is suggesting we ought to revisit. And the legislature in South Dakota made reference to so let's talk a little bit opinion. about the policy issue here. You know, this, basically the states are saying, um, well, one, everyone was pointing at Amazon, so that's why it was called the Amazon tax. Although, you know, eventually the Amazon tax wars became about everyone other than Amazon since Angela eventually had physical presence in all 50 states or at least agreed to pay taxes in all 50. But um, right. you have states pointing to the amount of revenue they were losing from not being able to collect for interstate transactions where the retailer wasn't based in their home state. I mean, what was the magnitude of what they were talking, was saying be left on the table? So the states had an expert that had calculated a number that was really, from our point of view, excessive. But they were talking about, come 2017, something on the order of $34 billion a year that states were not collecting on Internet sales. Now, as it happened, the um, Governmental Accountability Office issued a study of internet sales taxes right at the end of 2017, just as the court was about to take up our, our Wayfair case. And it found that the actual number was more like between 8 and $13 billion a year. So still a lot of money, but much smaller than what the states have been claiming. And, and honestly, the trend was in the other direction. Um, states were starting to collect on more and more online sales, Amazon leading the way, starting to collect all over the country, but other large retailers doing the same thing. Now, there's a weird nuance in this, in that while maybe, I'm not sure this is just California, but while in, in the transaction in which, you know, the interstate, the retailer is out of state and uh, so therefore has no duty to collect sales tax, um, depending on the state, you may still have a duty to pay the tax. And California is one of those states. And I actually was audited. Um, for my online sales, and uh, and had to you know give a report and you know, produce records for my online purchases for a couple of years, and uh, and I I owed like eight dollars and fifty cents or something <laughs> something really ridiculous, and to think of the administrative time and expense on both ends from the government to my end. To, to really uh, write the, the ship of California's fiscal um, state over $8.50. Yeah, it's, it's striking. The, you know, you and I, we both live in sales tax states. We, you know, theoretically, when you're a resident of a state and you make a purchase from an out-of-state company, you are obligated to pay that tax even if the company hasn't collected it from you. 
the challenge that makes both the kind of administrative ridiculousness of what you just described, but also the, the problem for remote sellers is there are, you know, while there are 45 states plus the District of Columbia that can collect sales taxes, there are more than 10,000 local jurisdictions in the United States that also have sales taxes. So internet retailers, particularly smaller businesses um, who are confronted with an obligation potentially to collect tax in every jurisdiction that assesses a sales tax, it's a really daunting challenge for them. And that was really at the core of the Wayfair case. So Wayfair comes to the Supreme Court. And I have to ask you a, a lawyer-to-lawyer question. What's it like walking into the Supreme Court as a litigant? Not not to sit in the galley, but when you're actually, you know, you're in the front. Well, if you're an appellate lawyer, um, it's the you know, the, the pinnacle of your career. And, you know, I think that we've been to the court, fortunate to go on two occasions in the last, you know, five years, and um, it's, you know, really an honor and um, a lot of fun, to be honest. And any, so you, you get there for the either Brawl or Wayfair. Were, were there any memorable points from the arguments? Like any justice sure, show or a sure, certain, sure. <laughs> any personality that, that that stayed with you? Yeah, I think, well, you know, thinking about Wayfair, because it's the more recent one, we went into that argument knowing that um, the court had, what had happened below is the, the, the courts in the state of South Dakota had agreed with us because the Quill precedent required that. And so we went in to the United States Supreme Court knowing that the court had taken the case a case where it could have passed and the rule would have stayed the same, which says, right. well, you know, the court's going to think about whether or not to, to, to reverse, which ultimately it did by a 5-4 to four vote. But you go in um, knowing that that may be the predisposition of the court, and in our case we had some, some justices, we can talk more about this maybe, but three of the justices were really, you know, not likely to favor us. So, And which three? It was daunting. Uh, well, you had Justice... Kennedy, Kennedy, who basically gave them the invite, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, Justice Thomas, he's, he's, he's who simply right here. <laughs> doesn't like the Dormant Commerce Clause, yeah. um, and he will—he said he will never again strike down a state law on that basis. And yet, Justice Gorsuch, who we had actually been before twice on our tenth in, in our parole case when it was in the Tenth Circuit, and we knew that he was not a fan either. So, you know, we needed really to get five of the other six to win the case and so it was a little bit daunting coming in and I think most of the industry and most of the state tax world thought the court will certainly reverse why else did it take the case right and what was really interesting is right out of the box Justice Sotomayor came after the um, state's attorney general who was arguing the case for the state with a series of really hard questions Um, and I'd like to say she came out swinging which was interesting because she had slipped in her kitchen. Oh, she was in the cast. <laughs> That's right, and almost, and I think she had broken her shoulder. So yeah, she, you know, there was a chance she wouldn't even come, but she came to the argument and and came <laughs> right out after him, and that it really set a tone that was interesting. Going into the argument, everyone thought we are certain to lose the case, you know, on the on the retailer side, and coming out, everyone said, "Wow, this is really a toss up," uh, and as it happened, it did end up being a five four decision, just just went against us. And anything from the other than Sotomayor, anything else stand out from the arguments? Well, I was gratified um, that Justice Breyer, um, in expressing some views views about the case, said, "You know, I read." He said this to the to the state's 
Attorney General. I read your briefs and I thought, absolutely right. And then I read their briefs and I thought, absolutely right. Um, and you can't both be absolutely right. Now, I feel a little bit like being told that, uh, you know, uh, my brief was, you know, that convincing is a little bit, you know, now that given the outcome, a little bit like being told your hair looks good just before your head gets cut off. But, um, <laughs> but it was still gratifying to, you know, have Justice Breyer um, point to our arguments and say, you know, you convinced me, but, the, you know, the difficulty here is I have to, I have to come up with a, a way of breaking this deadlock. So that's that's deciding with us, incidentally. Well, that's good. I was going to say, was that the legal equivalent of saying, it's not you, it's me? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, Um, um, one of the four dissenters. So, let's let's talk about why Justice Kennedy and the majority decided, okay, we have to overrule Quill. Sure. So, Quill was it was a physical presence rule, right? Which um, the court felt had. Uh, you know, five justice majority, really no redeeming qualities, <laughs> to be honest. Um, justice Kennedy felt that it, the rule was incorrect when it was decided, that it was an uh, an unsound interpretation of the Commerce Clause, that it um, favored um, remote sellers over instances in a way that tilted the playing field, that it created economic distortions in the marketplace. Uh, you know, if you have a, uh, a single employee in a state, you have to collect tax, but if you are selling millions of dollars into the state from uh, from a remote location. You don't. Um, he, he really found nothing to to um, justify the rule, uh, and um, on that grounds thought that it was appropriate to overturn it despite its value as settled precedent. Uh, and that was the problem he had. The other side was, you know, really much more focused as we were on the value of the precedent. Right, and I mean, I, get, I, I lifted a quote in the show notes and. He said the Commerce Clause must not prefer interstate commerce only to the point where a merchant physically crosses state borders. Um, rejecting the physical presence rule is necessary to ensure that artificial competitive advantages are not created by this court's precedence. That's exactly right. They really felt that the, the Quill rule um, was distorting the marketplace. That was the view of the, of the majority. Um, I think there's a good counter-argument to that, and, and some of the show notes you quote from Justice Roberts point out, you know, one of the basis, that, you know, that, that those are the rules under which this entire marketplace has grown up. Right. Uh, and um, to change that rule so abruptly, um, and what really is a policy judgment appropriate to Congress more than it is to the court, is, you know, is going to create an incredible uncertainty in the marketplace. and. And to be frank, uh, there is a substantial uncertainty right now about right. Um, compliance with state tax laws. Yeah, Justice Roberts says the court should not act on this important question of economic policy solely to expiate a mistake it made over 50 years ago. And and this, this is something that should be undertaken by Congress. And I, I can see the argument. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce, and that's you know, one of the reasons why the court had reaffirmed the rule in Quill 25 years before. Um, Congress really is the body with the expertise to be able to uh, analyze the competing interests and understand how this uh, might impact the market, and also to, you know, to implement measures to limit those kinds of negative effects. The court really isn't you know, an up or down kind of a vote on um, the current rule, uh, and it can't, you know, implement um, fine 
distinctions that uh, can take care of the kinds of complexities that multi-state tax compliance imposes. And and Congress, you know, had attempted to to do, you know, to address this um, through debates over what was known as the uh, um, Main Street Marketplace Fairness legislation, and uh, um, but you know that seemed to never get anywhere because you know Congress just can't seem to agree on anything that involves a tax. <laughs> right. Well, that's the great debate, right? Congress was not inactive in the area. They had, in fact, looked at lots of solutions, and none had ever garnered a majority of both houses. So, you know, does that mean that Congress is paralyzed? You know, unfortunately, we see that a lot in many areas nowadays. Or does it mean yeah. that they, they think the current rule is better than the alternatives that have been put forward so far? And the reality is, state taxes are complex. Um, you know, Justice Chief Justice Roberts in his dissent pointed it out. Um, uh, I'm going to read for just a second from him. He said, sure. the court breezily disregards the costs that its decisions will impose on retailers. Correctly calculating and remitting sales tax on all e-commerce sales will likely prove baffling for many retailers. Over 10,000 jurisdictions levy sales taxes, each with different tax rates, different rules governing tax-exempt goods and services, different product category definitions, and different standards for determining whether you're subject to the tax. And that complexity is something that Congress um, had yet to, I think, find what it viewed to be an adequate solution for. Um, And the backstop rule of the physical presence standard was something that you might, as Justice Kennedy did, say this doesn't make sense in a lot of circumstances um, kind of at the margins. But it did create a rule that limited the complexity of state tax um, compliance for multi-state businesses. And that, that limitation is now gone, and businesses are having to deal with that. There are new um, limiting principles from the court's Wayfair decision, but um, we're in a transition period. So uh, we're going to take a, a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about really the fallout from the Wayfair decision and, and what exactly comes next. After these messages, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th through the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions from the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bates, 
Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. Cyberspace, the final frontier. These are the voyages of your new business enterprise. It's ongoing mission to explore strange new domains, to seek out new sites and new monetizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. WebmasterRadio.fm. So logical. You'll go out of your Vulcan mind. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. Uh, a few announcements of upcoming events of note. At noon Pacific today, the California Lawyers Association's Technology, Internet, and Privacy Subcommittee, which I chair, will be holding their monthly call with a presentation on the status of net neutrality from the EFF. And tomorrow and Friday, the Federal Trade Commission will begin a series of hearings at my alma mater, Georgetown University Law Center, on whether broad-based changes in the economy, evolving business practices, new technology, or international developments might require adjustments to competition and consumer protection enforcement law, enforcement priorities, and policy. The hearings will be webcast, so we have information um, both are available in our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. So before the break, we were talking about what now, and I guess let's talk about just you know, kind of the let's just stay within the Wayfair confines. Um, is that case resolved now? The case was remanded by the United States Supreme Court back to the South Dakota state courts, and. There's not been much activity um, upon remand other than it's been all, sent all the way back to the trial court. The parties were discussing whether or not there was a way to resolve the matter, uh, and they haven't reached an agreement in that regard, um, which triggered some action by the, the governor of South Dakota. So um, here's where things stood with uh, the case being accepted by the United States Supreme Court. There were a handful of states that had copied South Dakota and there have been lawsuits filed in those states. And those state statutes were all suspended pending the outcome of the Wayfair case, along with South Dakota's. Um, The statute itself in South Dakota doesn't allow the Department of Revenue to enforce the law until the case is resolved. 
So um, the remand meant that uh, South Dakota still wasn't yet able to enforce. So the governor, uh, impatient to be able to permit his uh, state revenue department to start imposing sales tax on remote sales, has introduced some special legislation and bills that are going before the South Dakota legislature today, as a matter of fact, that would lift oh, timely. that <laughs> ban. <laughs> yes, that it would lift that ban effective November 1st for every company other than the three companies that were involved in the suit. And I expect that will pass. I, you know, I'm not a South Dakota um, lobbyist or anything, but I'll, I'll be surprised if they don't get that through. So so the case isn't fully resolved. I, d- I wouldn't expect a lot of new developments in the South Dakota case itself. I think what we're going to be looking for now are developments elsewhere around the country. Um, and, you know, again, we are really in a, in a period of some uncertainty as states figure out what they're going to do uh, in the wake of Wayfair. Now, the timing of the ruling is important because it was announced as at, at the close of the session, you know, these it was one of the final decisions announced in June, and as Justice Kennedy was announcing his retirement, and in a way, fortunately for from your perspective, the um, a lot of states had already uh, you know concluded their legislative sessions by that point. There were only a handful that were still in session, so you know, the really battle over at the state level and in terms of what next from after Wayfair, probably won't begin until January. Well, I think I have to put an asterisk on that. And so revenue okay. departments were still were still in session, right? They were still, they never adjourned. So there were a lot of <laughs> revenue departments that decided to announce effective dates. So the what you have now, uh, let's be one step back. Compliance with state state tax systems across the entire country, not just in South Dakota, but everywhere, which is really the potential outcome from the Supreme Court's decision, is daunting for a lot of retailers, big and small alike, especially, you know, smaller players probably have a bigger obstacle, but there are big players that that are challenged by this as well. And they really need time, at a minimum, to be able to try to implement systems to collect taxes in dozens of states and potentially thousands of jurisdictions. Well, not every state is being patient. So there are a handful of states that have asked for companies to start collecting as of the 1st of July of 2018. And there's a wave that are coming on around October 1st. There's a few that have announced that they're going to defer that collection date until early 2019. And when you take that whole group together, there's about 30 states that have have announced an effective date. you know, really anything as early as October is just not feasible for most companies. There are some that can do it, but it's it's really a daunting challenge for most. Uh, so we've got about 30 that have announced, about 15, including the largest states, California, New York, Texas, Florida, uh, Pennsylvania, who have not announced a specific date yet. I guess thank heaven for small... <laughs> <laughs> for, for small, small miracles, <laughs> yeah. Um, the um, I guess the question then is one: Where is Congress on all this? And I, I maybe we should talk a little bit about the the, uh, the whole effort to streamline sales tax and and the uh, the Main Street Fairness Bill. Sure, it's an important feature not only of federal legislation. Uh, but also of the court's decision for the following reason. 
You mentioned an attempt to streamline. So there's there's a organization called the Streamline Sales Tax Governing Board that uh, is represented by states that have joined a streamlined sales and use tax agreement, and that agreement requires the states to make their laws more uniform and more simplified. Um, now, unfortunately, the 20-some-odd states that are members of that only make up about 30% of the population. Once again, all the large states are not members. But South Dakota is one of those states. And the Supreme Court, in um, deciding that the physical presence rule of Quill was no longer the law, said, we now need some other standards by which to assess state laws. The court made clear that multi-state tax collection can be a burden. But it said, we do have principles in Commerce Clause jurisprudence that allow us to assess undue burden, and it pointed to some of the other tests the court has identified, but at the same time said, let's look at South Dakota. It has features of a system that we think help to eliminate undue burden on multi-state sellers. And those features are membership in the streamlined sales and use tax agreement, as well as certain thresholds for you know small sellers. If you fall below a certain volume of sales, you're not obligated to collect. And then finally, a prohibition on retroactive enforcement. So they can't go back and say, ha, you know, the rules just changed, and now, um, you know, three years ago when you thought you didn't have to collect because of physical presence, well, guess what? That That's no longer a good rule, so now we're going to come back and, and go after you. So South Dakota prohibits that. Those three features, SSUTA membership, thresholds, and non-retroactivity, are the sort of wayfair factors that you can point to for how do we evaluate um, whether or not a state law is consistent with the Constitution. Um, streamlining is something that Congress has looked at as well, so it really has become a major focus now of, of going forward compliance. Now, if I remember right, there, there seemed to be momentum for um, what was being called the Marketplace Fairness Act that would allow states to collect. It basically would, would give a, you know, give South Dakota and others what they wanted and what they got out of Wayfair, so long as they did so in this kind of compact of um, you know, streamlining sales tax so that it was understandable. And it, it got a, a fair amount of support, but then um, got the veto from the anti-tax advocates who said that you know, even though it wasn't necessarily raising taxes um, since it was permitting collection of taxes that aren't currently being collected it therefore was anathema to their anti-tax ideology and uh, and that kind of just killed the bill's progress yeah there it, it's been the case that folks that are um, generally opposed to um, more taxes have opposed the effort of states to be able to expand their sales tax collection uh, systems to, to remote sales. There have also been advocates within the Congress and elsewhere that have felt like there's a feature of taxation without representation to remote sales tax collection. So if you're a retailer in Indiana 
and right. you're making a sale to someone in Florida, um, you don't really have any voice in the Florida legislature about whether or not your products should be taxed at what right. rate, you know, etc. And so, um, not only are there advocates in Congress who said, you know, that uh, smacks to us of taxation without representation, imposing that obligation on that Indiana seller, but there were some prominent um, Supreme Court advocates who had, you know, made similar arguments to the court in their amicus filings as well. So those factors along with this, you know, I mentioned that, as you say, simplification with streamlining was sort of the model they were going for. And unfortunately, so many states have passed on that membership. They've said, no, that's, we're, not, we're not prepared to do that, that it hadn't gotten through Congress. Well, maybe they need to have a better Christmas party so everyone joins. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been but, certainly some kind of you know door prize or something. Yeah. The um, but here's the thing: it puts you know at, at the at the Washington level, it creates a big conflict. I mean, on one level, Congress could just say, you know, um, Kennedy was wrong. When when we're ready to act, we'll act and just pass a law saying you know overruling Wayfair. I guess they could. Um, and that would be you know, kind of a win for the anti-tax people. But at the same time, many of the anti-tax people are also very much state rights, states' rights people. And you're basically, you're, you're nullifying the states' rights to decide that they want to collect these. It can be a tension for, you know, for advocates that, that value those kinds of things. And, for, and you're right, it's, Congress does have the authority to um, change these rules. So it can change what the Supreme Court has done um, by enacting legislation that adjusts the rules. And really, simplification from Congress has become even more important now than it was before. Uh, and so I think you'll, you'll continue to see a push for that. States now don't have as much interest in it because they've won what they wanted to win from the right. United States Supreme Court. So it, it's not certain by any means that we'll see a congressional solution, but it really would be the right outcome. And and so, in terms of the politics of the situation, I mean, your clients are, is, is it fair to say, large retailers? Yeah, we represent uh, dozens of, of remote sellers of various sizes, but the, certainly the companies that were targeted by South Dakota and precisely for that reason were large businesses, Wayfair, Overstock, Newegg, are larger internet retailers. And last I checked, you guys aren't without influence in Washington. I think, you know, we all know that bigger companies do tend to have more clout, unfortunately, when it comes to um, what can happen in Congress. Um, you've gone from having a backdrop of a physical presence rule to having a backdrop of, you know, no physical presence rule. And it, it does change the dynamics. One of the fascinating things, as you alluded to, is that Amazon in the course of this uh, changing landscape, really switched sides. It had, you know, for a yeah. long time didn't collect taxes, and now it does. And to be honest, Amazon has benefited enormously by the court's decision. Um, it had started collecting taxes everywhere, um, you know, a decision that, that's going to require many more companies, including its smaller competitors, to collect taxes only helps it. Um, it provides a lot of tax collection services, uh, you know, for other retailers, and there'll be a, 
presumably more that more retailers will be interested in buying that service from Amazon. So they've been assisted by this outcome, I think, in in ways that tend to, you know, we talk about the antitrust issue that's coming up before the FTC. They've, right. been, they've been helped by this outcome in ways that improve their dominant position. But it means that the politics are are nuanced to a certain extent. And um, if we put the politics aside and just think about the policy for a moment, the right policy would be a simpler a simpler uh, sales tax system. And um, do, without having to, to show show your cards, is there any you know strategy or is there anything that your clients are pushing in Washington in particular? Well, simplification measures, many of which are similar to streamlined, but some which might go beyond that, are something that's really vital. Um, so um, there are uh, industry associations, um, many of whom band together under a um, under the trust banners of true simplification of state taxes mm-hmm. that have advocated certain measures. Um, you know, to simplify uh, the number of audits that a company can be subjected to, the the definitions so they don't change from state to state what's taxable and what's not, the the way um, different aspects of taxes are, are administered. Um, there's the list goes on and on, honestly, uh, in terms of the things that could be simplified and, in the best outcome, will be. But uh, you know, it's going to take more momentum. Um, Folks on, on who are impacted by this, who may be listening, it makes sense to be in touch with your legislators um, to, to let your interests be known because the more they hear that this is an issue of importance, the more likely we'll get a solution out of the Congress. Exactly. And one thing actually about this retail industries is that um, your Congress responds when there's something in usually a, a nationwide industry because there's you know, there's one of them in every district, you know, and that that makes people wake up, you know, and the insurance agents are very powerful in, in Washington because, you know, everyone, every congressman knows an insurance agent. Same for librarians and the other groups. And so, yeah, everyone knows a mom-and-pop store or even, you know, a, a bigger store. And you know they buy there and they run into the people at there when they're back in the district. So definitely, um, yeah, the, their voices will be heard. Um, one voice that has to be heard, though, we have to take our last break. So um, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Webmaster Radio FM. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. 
TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we'll have an archive show next week since it will be my 20th wedding anniversary. Yes, hard to believe. Um, Do you send her an anniversary card or a sympathy card? Um, (laughs) But September 19th is also the day of the Terry Fox run. Um, Terry Fox is a Canadian hero who lost his leg to cancer. So he tried to raise money and awareness um, by for cancer by running across the country a marathon each day on one leg and he got halfway across the country until the cancer came back and um, was found in his lungs and his foundation organizes a run every September 19th um, years after his passing so we have information in our show notes on the run and I encourage you to check it out it's a real courageous story and um so it's a worthy worthy charity. But um, one thing that is not a charity are retailers. And uh, we're talking with Matthew Schaefer um, about the Wayfair ruling. Now, Matt, uh, I always love this story. And uh, you know, Matt isn't calling from some Madison Avenue firm. Um, he's calling from a firm that's based in Lewiston, Maine. And it's a, it's a great story how this became uh, a legal power Um in the retail space. Yeah, we were fortunate to represent the wonderful retailer L.L. Bean for a number of years, um, going back into the 60s when one of our former partners established uh, a relationship with uh, Leon Gorman, who was then the chairman of Bean. And L.L. Bean being a prominent um, catalog marketer, our firm became involved in issues of importance to catalog marketers, and then from there, uh, those companies morphed into um, you know, internet businesses. At the same time, we were um, counsel to some of the associations representing those businesses, like the Direct Marketing Association that we represented in the 2015 Brohl case. And that, you know, it was that L.L. Bean nexus that allowed us to uh, um, develop um, a client base representing Internet businesses uh, and multi-state retailers. And and we've actually had uh, a number of people from Maine on our show. Um, Not only is there you, there's Jane Hitchcock, who's a big cyber crime expert, uh, and she's in York. And... uh, we had um, Trevor from the IAPP, um, which used to be based in New York Harbor, and I think he's moved it to Portsmouth. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, it, Maine has a surprisingly uh, prominent internet presence. Something and in our clean water, maybe. I think. Maybe that's it. <laughs> so, um, 
any event. So what? let's talk about what this means for a retailer. How much does it cost to comply with you know, the 10,000 plus taxes that you have to collect? Or are retailers just saying, sorry, if, if I'm only have three sales from you know, Wyoming, I'm just not gonna bother to do sales there because it's, it's not worth the expense. Right. I think most retailers are looking at compliance. There are some of those thresholds that, that protect, you know, the, are sm- the smallest businesses from being obligated to collect everywhere. Um, we have to watch to see whether states are going to you know, follow the guidance of Wayfair and adopt those kinds of thresholds that may protect the smallest businesses. But most are, are trying to, to figure out how to comply in more states. Um, we do have rules that might... Uh, now limit the authority of states who who aren't members of Streamline, for example, who don't simplify their systems. Um, it's expensive. Uh, the the license fees for software um, are significant themselves. They usually run in the you know five, often six figures as you get to a bigger business. But it's really the the costs that are more difficult to quantify that start to add up. And those kinds of costs are. You know, when you buy software, um, you have to uh, map all of your products onto that software to determine their taxability, which means you have to sort of categorize them and think about, you know, is this pair of shoes, is that athletic wear, or is it clothing? Um, this candy that I sell, is that right, properly characterized as candy, or does it have something that might make it a food product? And so you have to do this across all of your products, and that's your own effort at your own expense. And on the back end, you have audits. That's a real concern, and one that we, of course, don't have enough time post-Wayfair to have too much experience with, but anyone who's been audited knows it's time-consuming, it's expensive, it detracts from your business, from what you really want to be doing. And if companies are now going to be subject to dozens or even, you know, hundreds of audits a year, we're going to see a real negative impact from this. Definitely. So, do you think, in terms of planning your your year next year, um, how much of it do you think you'll be in state capitals versus how much do you think you'll be in Washington? Well, I think at the moment um, it'll probably be more state capitals. Um, if we're fortunate to see a, sol- a solution out of Washington, it'll be something that I think puts some order to the chaos. But otherwise, I think it's more likely that we're going to be dealing with this on a state by state basis in some instances, a locality-by-locality basis. Um, And it really, the uncertainty of it is, um, it may, you know, we'll see how it shakes out, but when Justice, Chief Justice Roberts says, you know, when you change the rule um, as a court, instead of letting Congress do it, we're not sure what's gonna happen. Um, You know, we're gonna go through a period of uncertainty now that uh, we're gonna have to ride out. Yeah, I'm reminded of there's the uh, '70s movie with Robert Redford, the candidate, and you know at the end of the movie he wins, and it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> I really thought about that. We've been so focused on winning, you know, now what? And I, I guess you know we are in this great period of uncertainty. We are states. You know, some some state tax officials speak reasonably about this and say we need to take it slow and we need to understand that this is this can't happen overnight. But, you know, just yesterday, for example, the state of Colorado, uh, which has probably the most complicated tax, state tax system in the country for sales and use taxes, 
has just issued emergency regulations that are going to require remote sellers uh, to collect taxes starting December 1st. Wow, and this is a state flush with cannabis cash. <laughs> right, uh, which makes you wonder why they apparently are trying to capture the holiday sales season. I don't know. Oh, that must uh, be it. Yeah, I was because I was thinking, you unlike well, 2008, where you had a recession, and you know it takes a while for states' tax revenue to come back from a recession. So that's why you had those Amazon battles. And, you know, unlike now, you you have you know, then you have a, you have a decent economy. So states may not be as fiscally pressed as they were you know, a decade ago. Yeah, I mean, we presented evidence to the court um, in the case that although states were complaining about the lost revenues, um, state sales tax revenues across the country had actually been growing for the last several years um, regularly. And so they, they, they weren't really strapped for cash. And the problem, honestly, was getting smaller, not more egregious. But it may just be that, you know, by the time the legal system caught up to the marketplace, um, you know, there was a little bit behind the curve in terms of what the market realities were. Um, companies now increasingly sell through multiple channels, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know. Right. If you're doing that, you more often have physical presence. So um, that's true. Now, um, maybe you guys should consider having your clients just set up a GoFundMe page for the, for the states, and that'll just solve the problem. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we only yeah, that was a joke. Um, we we only have a few minutes left, um, Matt. You got an, an impressive background, and uh, and it's always been a pleasure having you and working with you. At least, but we've done a conference or two together. Um, do you have anything coming up you want to announce or any uh, articles or conferences you're speaking at? Well, as it happens, I'm talking about this issue, as you might I mean, you might imagine, um, a couple of different times during the fall. I'll be at the um, Institute for Professionals of Taxation meeting, um, which I think, you, you know, that one's not necessarily open to the public, but I'll be speaking in Indian Wells, California on the 1st of October with some other great folks from the sales tax world about this case. Um, I'm speaking with uh, the New England uh, state and local tax uh, group in the Boston area in mid-November. And uh, next March, (laughs) to be way out there, I'll be in New Orleans for a a discussion about this in an ABA IPT um, venue that uh, they're sponsoring there in uh, in New Orleans. So hopefully by then we'll have some greater That's level clear. of understanding about where states are going. Actually, if, you, if you're interested, we, I mean, we'd love to have you do one for the California Bar. So, Well, that sounds great. Um, uh, why don't we talk about that? I, okay, I, we'll, we'll talk about that offline. But um, I just want to thank you again. It's always been fun, and uh, I love to highlight the, the little firm that could from Lewiston. And um, so just a reminder, we will have an archive show um, next week. But the week after, we're going to have a special show commemorating the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One, And we'll be talking to someone from the World War One Museum in Kansas City. And who knows, maybe we'll do it live from Kansas City. I haven't quite decided that yet. But have a great week, everyone. And for those in the Carolinas, be safe. Uh, one word of advice, um, learn what those flags mean. The warning flags on the beach. I was in North Carolina after Hurricane Bob, 
And I remember coming out of the water and asking someone what the flag meant, and he told me it said, don't swim. <laughs> <laughs> so it's better to know that beforehand. So any event, everyone be safe, um, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks again, Matt. Have a great week, everyone. Um, follow us at Cyberlaw Radio on Twitter, and uh, check out Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet firm. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.